Hello and welcome to July's episode of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities Asia Pacific. When it comes to currencies, it often feels like it's all about the US dollar. Indeed, the greenback has dominated international trade and finance for decades. And while that's still true today, some subtle shifts have started playing out among the currencies of major economies. Rising geopolitical tensions and the changing structure of global trade are prompting some countries to even rethink and scale back their reliance on the dollar, a process now referred to as de-dollarization. And Catherine, at the same time, China's been pushing to increase the use of the renminbi in international markets in the hope that someday it could challenge the dollar as a major reserve currency. This comes despite China's capital account remaining mostly closed and the renminbi not being freely convertible and also despite the dollar's current dominance as the world's go-to safe haven asset. So the question is, how far can de-dollarization go? Could it disrupt how companies or countries pay for imports and exports? Or even how the US funds itself as the world's biggest debt nation? And of course, what does it mean for China's efforts to promote the renminbi on the world stage? Will global investors start buying more renminbi-based stocks and bonds anytime soon? Perhaps even being sold by non-Chinese companies? To discuss this whole theme around de-dollarization, our guests today are Morgan Lau, who's one of our Hong Kong-based portfolio managers in our fixed income team, and Pei Chin Lu, our Singapore-based Asia economist. Pei Chin, let's start with you. And I'd like to talk about how did the US dollar come to be the global reserve currency in the very first place? Sure. I mean, when we talk about dollar being a global reserve currency, many people would link that to the Bretton Woods system and its subsequent collapse uh, to the dollar story. But I think I would like to highlight a few things that happened even before that, and it's an evolutionary process. So first, the U.S. emerged to become the largest economy, a global economic superpower in the 1940s before the Bretton Woods system. And also, more specifically, U.S. trade has been accounting to more than half of the global share for the dollar to be more widely utilized outside the U.S. At that period of time, the U.S. also has the largest gold reserve holdings, which paved way for the global currencies to be packed with the dollar, and the dollar is packed to the gold to increase its credibility around that. And also, lastly, I also want to highlight that the dollar was also made available offshore by capital outflows. So all these series of events paved the way for dollar to become a credible global reserve currency that's been held by the major central banks. And also going forward to 1970s, the position was further cemented when the global petrol are settled in the dollar and the subsequent rise of petrol dollar that we see all the way until today. Thanks, Peichen. And Morgan, any, any additional thoughts from you? I have just some numbers to supplement what Peijin was saying. So we went from a very uh, US or US dollar dominant uh, world economy from 1970s to now a world where, which is um, obviously US dollar and the US is still very dominant, but it's a lot less than before. Now, uh, some key numbers that I like to share would be um, the GDP percentage share of the US went from about 39% in the 1960 to now about 25%. But if you are on uh, purchasing power parity, this is down to like 15%. Um, trading, import and export both 
went down as well. Export in particular went from 19% in the 60s to now under 10%. And then the last number, which could play a, a more important role in the, in the future as some of the developing world become more developed, is the world population as well, uh, which went from uh, just under 6% to now uh, low 4%. And that number is expected to continue to go down just as the developing world are growing a bit faster as well. So all of that just means we went from an absolutely dominant world of the U.S. and therefore U.S. dollar to now not so much. And so I think the U.S. reserve system, as Paige mentioned before, almost came up as convenience. Um, so now we're just moving away from the convenience. So is, for example, the RMB a new convenience? Or from a practical perspective, what are we actually seeing as a result of all the numbers you've just been talking about? I think it is a gradual process. I think people were probably subconsciously or even inadvertently moving away from the US dollar just because of the numbers I was quoting. Like we were using less US dollar in general very, very gradually and very, very slowly. But now that it came to a point, especially because last year we had some fairly large scale geopolitical tension and some very severe sanction came about uh, from the US government. And that sort of made people think about maybe an alternative system, especially for some country. So before that, it was more a passive and inadvertent move away from the US dollar. Um, now it is you know, a more active attitude looking for an alternative, which is why it feels like a very topical thing to talk about, but it has been going on for a while. Hey Chen, let me hit you with a very basic question here for our listeners. What is the difference between the renminbi, the yuan, and then we also have CNH and CNY, and I know, Morgan, that's more your specialty, but let's start with the renminbi and yuan. Why do we have both names? Well, I think they're just names. The renminbi and yuan are interchangeable, and we just use this loosely to define the currency itself. The yuan is perhaps referring to the paper note itself more widely in China, but renminbi is just a, a broader term to, to refer to the currency. But we do have CNY, CNH. I think Morgan might be a much more specialist uh, in terms of explaining that. But to loosely speaking, CNY is the currency that's circulating onshore inside China, and CNH, as the name suggests, is circulating initially in Hong Kong that's offshore and has been more widely used outside China. Morgan talked about the the amount of dollars in the system. Are are central banks themselves actually holding fewer dollars these days? Well, yes, indeed. It has been shrinking. At the peak of uh, dollar holdings, global central banks are holding about 70% of the reserves in the dollar. And the latest number we have in Q1 2023, it has been down to 59%. So it's your call to see how significant that is. But the fact is that it's being a slow, gradual reducing of dollar holdings in the process. And where are those holdings going if central banks aren't holding them? There has been a few alternatives emerging, as Morgan has been mentioning. Central banks are also actively looking for alternatives by reducing their dollar holdings. They might have increased the holdings of the euros, yen, or even uh, the Chinese yuan. And also going back to gold is always one of the favorable alternatives. It's worth noting that the peak of reserve holding in U.S. dollar by countries was actually around 1999-2000, which was 70 plus percent at that point. And around the turn of century, uh, two things happened. Uh, the euro became a reality, so a, a single unified currency for the whole euro. And uh, China went into WTO in 2001 as well. So both of those moves just means in terms of trading and in terms of representation by uh, one single currency of euro just became more of a necessity for some of the country to hold non-U.S. dollar. Yes, it's interesting because it's a trend that has been going on for a lot longer yeah. than what you read about in the in the press and various commentaries. Yes, it is, Catherine. And, and you know, linked to that, 
I had a chance to catch up with Amit Gol earlier. He's an emerging markets equity portfolio manager based in Singapore. And we talked about why some countries are more excited about de-dollarization or even using more renminbi and what that means for investors. Amit, thanks for sitting down today. So you're an equity investor on the emerging market side. How does de-dollarization factor in your investment decisions? You know, when you think about de-dollarization, there are two parts of this currency movement. At one stage, we are talking about whether US dollar is losing its status as a reserve currency in the world. I think I would pay less attention to that, given there are a lot of macro factors involved in it. But there is a second aspect of it, where the trade in the world is moving. And is US dollar becoming a less transactional currency in the world? And is there any other currency which is replacing US dollar as a transactional currency? And I think that's where, as an equity investor, my focus area is. And obviously, we are talking about RMB here. Given what we have seen over the last 20 years is that China's share in global trade has gone up from single digit to 15% while U.S. share in global trade has been gradually coming down. So for me, it's an evolution rather than a revolution. And that's where I see U.S. dollar being losing its share in a global transactional currency. You focus a lot on Brazil. How does Brazil and the dynamics in that country tie into what you've just described about global trade and, and de-dollarization? I think it again goes back to trade. If you th- think about Brazil, their biggest trade partner is China. Yep. China accounts for 30% of share in Brazil global trade, and that trade has been growing at very strong double digit for last 10 years. So Brazil export iron ore, soya bean, and oil as three largest commodities to China, and they import machinery, semiconductor, consumer electronics, mobiles from China. Similarly, if you look at Russia, South Africa, Their biggest trading partner is China, and we are again talking about them exporting commodities to China, and China is the biggest commodity importer in the world, and China exporting machinery, equipments to to these countries. So I think it, it makes sense for them to talk about it as a transactional currency, but I don't see any big change in a reserve status. But again, I think it goes back to trade, and we will see more of these transactions being settled in Chinese yuan versus US dollar, because that's where trade is moving. We think about de-dollarization as as kind of a zero-sum game between the U.S. and China. But maybe there's chances for other countries to benefit from this dynamic. I mean, we talk about trade. Brazil might be an example. Maybe there's some in Asia as well. In last four years, U.S. has seen increase in their trade deficit from 2% of GDP to 4% of GDP. But at the same time, U.S. has reduced its reliance on China. China in 2017 used to be 50% of U.S. trade deficit. Mm. That 50% number has come down to 30% in last four years at a time when U.S. trade deficit is widening. So where is that trade deficit moving? It's moving to everywhere. It's moving to Asia, ex-Japan, ex-China, mm. which has taken up half of that trade deficit. It's moving to Mexico, which has taken up 5% of that trade deficit. Yeah. It's also moving to Euro area. But what is interesting is that in that whole dynamic, China is not losing global market share. So what China is losing from US, it's gaining from rest of the areas. Mm. So China's global market share has gone up in trade from 13 to 15 in the last four or five years. And it's becoming more surplus with the rest of the world. 
in that dynamics we are looking for areas which are actually increasing their us state surplus but not increasing their china trade deficit by that amount yeah. and there are two countries which stands out one is vietnam vietnam has increased its trade surplus with us by 80 billion dollar annually wow. in last 4 5 years but it has only increased its trade deficit with china by 30 40 billion dollar so they are keeping half of that value within vietnam so there is more value add it's becoming more competitive similar thing we have seen with mexico mexico has kept half of its trade balance within mexico so they have increased their trade surplus by us but their trade deficit with china has only increased by half Yeah, Marty, clearly Ahmed's just reinforced um, our initial part of our discussion in terms of it's it's more than just the US dollar. It is and and is touching on Brazil and Latin America and other markets even beyond what we're talking about today with RMB is is clearly a trend that that we're going to need to watch, isn't it? So we're living in a time where it appears the de-dollarization theme is highly correlated with escalating geopolitical tensions or geopolitics as a whole. So I guess the question Morgan is do you think that someday we could potentially live in a multipolar currency world Certainly as mentioned we've been using different currencies for for a long time anyway we're talking about what would change from where we are now to a more multipolar system so to speak would be the sort of payment system that we have rather than a very US dollar centric global payment system we're going to move away from that that's going to change the political power or you know the influence by different government a lot um so i i can pass it on to Peijin talk about the swift system and other payment systems Yeah sure i think uh, in terms of payment we do note that the swift system is absolutely dominating the global currency settlement right now there has been a few system emerging one of the more active ones being china's cips system which was kind of touted during the russia ukraine war outbroke and russian uh, officials being sanctioned and uh, markets is saying more russians are turning back to the cips system but what i would like to highlight is that uh, there has been quite a bit of inertia in terms of the change and there will be as morgan mentioned a much more gradual and more factors change going forward for that new system to emerge as a stronger matured uh, system to be adopted more globally Morgan, a word that you used earlier it keeps on resonating in terms of this whole argument debate about whether the RMB could become a more widely used reserve currency, and that is convenience. Because a lot of people would say it's inconvenient to trade the RMB. So, what would it take? The more obvious factor would obviously be um, free flowing of capital. Uh, right now, China is still a closed capital account, and therefore, technically, you're not supposed to trade that freely. There are two versions of the RMB: uh, one CNY, which is circulated onshore China, and another one CNH. So the CNH is a freely tradable version of RMB. Now there are mechanisms um, where some banks can cross both pool, and so to so you don't you cannot trade with arbitrage between the two currencies. Overall, the CNH pool is much smaller. So if you want to accommodate sort of global trade, the kind of volume of 
global reserve and everyone's usage is unlikely to work that way. And so uh, that would be the number one thing that we are looking at. Well, I think just to tie back to the very earlier version of how the dollar became the global uh, reserve currency, I, I do think that for the renminbi and for the yuan, there are a few more steps for that to achieve. Firstly, as Morgan mentioned, that China's capital account is not freely convertible. So that's one of the major constraints for markets to freely get access to renminbi for now. And also, I think another reason is that the USD was readily available offshore, which means that the U.S. has been economically running a current account deficit in order for more dollars to be made available globally. But on contrary, that's not the case in China right now. China is running the largest trade surplus in the world right now. So China is definitely holding a lot of dollars, but it's very hard to make the renminbi available offshore if China does not run a current account deficit. But I think the hurdle for that is pretty high right now. That requires a fundamental change in China's consumption and saving behavior for the renminbi to be much more readily available outside China. And Peichen, I guess it's all kind of linked to geopolitics, as you and Morgan have described. What's the balance between having a closed capital account and, and opening it up? And will China start to see the benefits of opening up? I guess where, where does that tipping point start to occur? Well, I think China is not in a rush to open its capital account, simply because China does not really need a free flow of currency right now, given that it's been running a current account surplus. So there is no imminent need for China to rush out and circulate its renminbi offshore, given that there hasn't been a fundamental change in a saving investment behavior in the economic structure yet. Morgan, one of the things we hear about from investors is, well, if you if you go out and you buy, say, a Chinese security, you can put your money in, can you get it out? And does, does what Peichen just described kind of play into that in the mindset of an international investor buying a Chinese stock? Yes. So there has been a lot of, well, not serious concern, but the question has always been asked, not so much now, but at the earlier day when, when China opened up the investment market, there were a lot of investors concerning that could they just, you know, withheld our right to take the money back from onshore to offshore. Now, that has never happened. Um, we have had very volatile market many times in China, outside of China, but that hasn't happened. So I think that concern has really come down. Now, going back to what renminbi can do, the operational efficiency in the world now is such that um, we have bond connect system or we have stock connect. All those connect scheme actually works such that if you are money coming out of China, trying to trade with the world, your money stay onshore and you get your stock almost through like a very thin membrane. Once you sell it, your money automatically goes back to onshore kind of thing. And the other way around as well, when you're going into China. So all of that actually kind of help China keeping the account closed without stopping people from investing into each other. Again, some years ago, there were talks about a London Connect as well. And so I think the plan was definitely to have more Connect programs so people can actually, without your money going onshore or going offshore, experience the investment market of each other. I think that is going to help for a bit longer, buys China a bit more time for the trading side, as well as for the reserve side in order to catch up. So one day, they might be able to open their capital account. So that leads me to the rise of digital currencies and whether this could shake up the future of cross-border payment systems. 
So China's central bank, the PBOC, has indeed been a pioneer in the use of central bank digital currencies, or the acronym is CBDCs. To find out more, our investment analysts, Xing Zhu and Monica Lee, a director of research for us, went out for coffee in Shanghai to test out this so-called ECNY for themselves. Hi, Ching. You're going to try using ECNY to pay, which I understand is not just a digital payment method, but an actual digital currency. So what is it and how prevalent it is in China? ECNY is China's official digital currency issued by the PBOC. Small-scale pilot trails began in 2019 and currently a few million stores accept it as a form of payment nationwide. In total, more than 100 million people have used ECNY over the past six months. Okay, shall we try it out? So that was pretty easy. Just a few taps on your phone and scan the QR code and we're ready to go. Yes, the app is very user-friendly. You simply download it from the App Store and create an account with your mobile phone number. So how different is it to establish transaction methods like Alipay, uh, WeChat Pay, or PayPal? From a user perspective, the transaction experience is very much similar. For the merchant, however, there are some cost advantages. For example, a transaction using the QR code costs the merchant 38 basis points while for a card transaction, this increases to 60 basis points. However, for ECNY transactions, there is no processing cost attached. One of the downsides of using ECNY wallet is that currently you cannot earn interest on your balance. This is very different from Alipay or WeChat Pay, where there are entire financial ecosystems built throughout the platform. And what are the advantages and disadvantages of central bank digital currency like ECNY from a central bank's perspective versus a consumer's point of view? The biggest advantage for the central bank is being able to have more accurate gauge of money and fund flows throughout the economy, allowing the bank to make more targeted monetary policy. As it currently stands, a lot of transaction activity is happening on WeChat and Alipay, which are closed-loop systems that limit how much the central bank is able to see the true underlying economic conditions on the ground. However, from a consumer perspective, one of the downsides is that because the central bank can see consumer activity more clearly, there are some privacy concerns. With all that said, do you think China will move towards a wider adoption of ECMY and why? Gradually over time, we will see an increase in adoption of ECMY. For ECMY to completely displace WeChat Pay or Alipay will take a lot of time and require an entire ecosystem that is just beyond payments. Indeed, it is a huge ecosystem that uh, Shing and Monica have mentioned. I mean, in India, remember, a lot of criticism about the Indian economy is like the cash society where you can't really trace a lot of the, the trade and and the sort of the wealth of, of the country itself. Absolutely. And and there's clearly, you know, some people will look at, at the, the downsides of being able to trace everything. But clearly, there's upsides too, right? As, as we heard from Shing and Monica, I think the upsides are probably going to benefit more than the downsides are going to detract. Peqing, what do you think about digital currencies? Could it make the RMB more appealing for use beyond China's borders? 
Well, I think uh, the digital currency is just an e-version of the fiat currency. So fundamentally, it doesn't really change uh, the, the function of the renminbi. And I was mentioning about how renminbi to become more appealing, we need a few more things to happen. But definitely the convenience of digital currency can't be ignored because I've mentioned about PBOC building a huge infrastructure to make it much easier to circulate RMB onshore by eCNY. But as of its usage offshore, I still reserve my opinion and think about you know that being a much longer process to come. Okay, so offshore, Morgan, where is Hong Kong in all of this? Uh, you know, Hong Kong as a, a petri dish, so to speak, for experiments in renminbi internationalization. I mean, it does have some advantages, you could argue. So Hong Kong has always been the experimental ground of some of those policies by China, so expansion, Bond Connect, Stock Connect, and all that. Um, actually, renminbi is in a very, very limited way in circulation in, in Hong Kong as well. So you do see people using that in cash form in Hong Kong as well a few years back. Now, you don't really see that anymore because actually onshore tourists, when they come to Hong Kong, because in the onshore, they don't use cash that much anymore. So they, when they come to Hong Kong, they actually expect us to be able to transact with them using um, Alipay and WeChat and in time uh, CNY as well. Um, Hong Kong is actually also going to be testing CNY. So all of that means Hong Kong will always be the experimental ground for all of those policy. Um, now, some of those other initiatives that have already been in, in gone going, for example, uh, CNH or the CNH bond market or the dim sum market is becoming a bit more popular in the last couple of years, again, uh, because of the yield differential with US dollar. So you have a lot of foreign issuer coming to this CNH or dim sum bond market to issue. Um, so whilst when we first came up in um, early 2010s, we were expecting it to grow really fast. It didn't really grow that fast. In fact, for a few years, it was actually dropping really quite quickly. But now I think it sort of finds its equilibrium where you will see a lot of foreign issuer coming to this to issue. And so it becomes like a place where they can take advantage of China funding costs. So in a way, opening up the rate market of China to all the offshore issuers and therefore investors. So in those subtle way and almost unintended way, um, Hong Kong is still playing a really key role in the financial development of China. Interesting. So there's that that sort of symbiotic benefit across the region. I guess, Peichen, let me shift gears a little bit and back to kind of geopolitics, but this time the Middle East. So because of what's happened with oil prices, there's a lot of excess reserves um, sitting in the Middle East right now, I think up to $2 trillion by some accounts. Some investors that we talk to are asking what happens with those excess reserves. Historically, they might have gone into the U.S. in the form of treasuries. But as we've talked about, you know, we found the U.S. as a reserve currency going down as a percentage of, of holdings. Is China to benefit from this? And, and I know I asked you before about SWIFT and you mentioned SWIFT. I think some people are a bit nervous around sanctions. Does, does that play into it or am I looking down you know, uh, the wrong path there? I don't really have much details about how the excess reserves uh, in terms of numbers, but I could envision that uh, diversification is definitely one of the key objectives of them uh, investing their excess reserves now, given how people have been diversifying away in terms of their U.S. dollar holdings. But I would say that does not really translate into direct one-for-one -one substitute of CNY, but much more of a diversification across different currencies. So I could envision that the yuan becomes one of the beneficiaries of this reserve diversification process. 
I mean, as mentioned by Peijin, like the US dollar became a global reserve currency back in the 70s. Uh, one of the reasons because oil was priced in US dollar, the liquid gold. Now, if liquid gold is going to be traded at least partly in renminbi, it's definitely going to help uh, the internationalization as well. And we have to remember that a lot of the downstream from the oil industry, all of their cost calculation have to follow. If you are trading in a lot of renminbi in, in volume, you have to follow as well. So that is going to have a very widespread effect. But it will take time. But in my personal view, it's definitely going to happen. You know, Morgan, we weren't at a cafe. We weren't using ECMY. But I remember vividly a few months ago chatting to you outside near our coffee machine in the kitchen and basically cornering you on the subject of de-dollarization. And I asked you, all right, would you go long the RMB, short the US dollar? If we have a longer time horizon than we can usually afford in the investment world, like in a few years' time, the trend is definitely that we are looking at a higher trading volume in renminbi. We are also looking at peak US dollar rate, which means the only way to go is sort of for US dollar rate to go down. If you're looking at holding renminbi versus holding US dollar right now, whatever investment view or political view you have, the truth is holding renminbi is quite expensive because of the lower risk-free rate you have in renminbi. And so a lot of people are quite reluctant to hold anything other than US dollar. But once the peak rate cycle comes down, I think that resistance or that reluctance to hold something else is going to come down. And um, naturally, renminbi will be the first thing you look at because it satisfies, other than the free flowing, satisfy a lot of the need for a currency. Like, for example, it's politically sort of stable. You have a very large investment market as well. So all of that just means naturally people will increase their holdings of renminbi. So the valuation-wise, I think it would be a good bet. And Peijin, Marty and I are going to take you to coffee. And when we do, we're going to hold you to your view. What's your sort of outlook on the near-term development of the RMB? And also a key question, what about intervention by policymakers? Could this also affect sort of the development and usage of the RMB? Definitely. I think intervention is always making the financial market nervous and increase their hesitation on holding the currencies. But to be fair, I think the policymakers in China has been intervening the currency a lot less after the 2016-17 episode of arresting the yuan weakness with selling foreign reserves. We are now facing uh, yuan weakness again uh, as the dollar CNY testing levels above 7 and close to its uh, historic peak. But we can see that the policymakers has been more relaxed in terms of their intervention. They haven't done much other than managing it by a stronger than expected daily fix. There has not been any re-leveraging of capital controls or utilizing their FX reserves to directly intervene in the financial market. So all this on aggregate to me means that the policymakers is letting the market determine the rate of dollar CNY right now. And that means going forward, it's going to be more relaxed about the volatility of the yuan. And it's close to a hands-off stance in the currency market. All right, Morgan, let's bring it back to markets and investing, which a lot of our listeners are interested in. De-dollarization, currency flows. How does it look to you? And, and, you know, you manage bond funds, which invest in both offshore and onshore securities. How do those dynamics impact the way you're looking to deploy client assets today? 
at Fidelity, we have the platform that allow us to separate how much yield we are getting and what currency we're holding. So I actually, from my portfolio, um, hold uh, renminbi or China onshore bonds whilst still getting US dollar exposure by using derivative. And the advantage of that actually is the onshore bond market for the last many years has been one of the most stable uh, in terms of market volatility and return. Now, the return might not be as good as US dollar. Right now, uh, we're looking at policy rate, which is under 3% onshore versus uh, US dollar, which is about 5 but if we are holding onshore bond, which is very steady, give me a very steady carry. And if I hatch back into a US dollar, I actually get that you pick up back into US dollar, which can actually be better than holding a pure US dollar denominated bond. So all of those operation means uh, we are getting the best of both worlds right now. Now, it also means I can, in a very easy trade, change the currency exposure back into renminbi should I think renminbi is going to appreciate. So um, I think this is the sort of uh, time when we need to be able to look at the dynamic of different market, different rates market, different FX market, and do the best trade for our client and use the best and most liquid uh, in instrument as well. So all of that means just stay nimble. And a final question, Morgan. So would you argue that after all these years of, of managing this type of asset class that you are indeed seeing freer convenience or better convenience? Uh, yes, definitely. If we look at it from a few angles, from I think 2014-15 was when we started having this scheme called um, QFI and QD, which is the Qualified Foreign Institutional Investor. So it's a quota system where we can go into China to invest. And then 2017, we have this thing called CIBM Direct, which is not a quota system. So investor can just freely go in and out. And then we have Bond Connect as well. So the market is definitely becoming a lot more convenient. If you are talking to clients as well, when I first started trading um, China asset, people were asking about how to apply for all of those things I just mentioned. And then it moved on to how do they look at the rate market? Like, you know, do I trade the rate market just like I trade the US dollar market looking at economic data and all that? And now people are moving on to thinking about corporate bonds already. You can see that the assets, whether it's in and out of China, and also the level of sophistication of our clients are also developing and improving with the market as well. So um, the directions, I, I think you would you keep on going that way until one day we'll be able to trade the Chinese uh, investment market just like we trade any other open account. It's been a fascinating conversation and, and pretty wide ranging, Catherine, as we always sort of delve into different topics. I love the chats about, you know, sort of the gradual trend of, of China opening up and looking at that sort of the renminbi becoming a reserve currency. I have to say, one of the most interesting things was the electronic notes. And what I would challenge you to do <laughs> is next time you get into a Hong Kong taxi to try to pay with one of these electronic notes, because I find, you know, it's only cash. Yeah, well, it's changing. But what I also am using as a gauge these days in terms of, I hate using this word because I've used it already so many times, convenience. But how many times you go to these international cities and you're seeing Alipay yeah. available? Yeah. So, you know, once again, I'm always staggered just when we speak to our guests, the pace and the quickness of this pace of development. Um, even though I know sentiment remains a little bit weak and bearish towards China, you know, on the ground, we're still seeing such quite amazing developments. Amazing, amazing. And, and developments there that the rest of the world is catching up on, aren't they? That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to our guests, Morgan Lau and Pei-Chin Liu, and to our other contributors, Amit Gol, Monica Lee, and Xingzhu. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's being covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or visit fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Kim Juko, Rory Fong, and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Su, Keith Chen, and Judy Chen. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye.
Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.